Hey everyone! Welcome to Zeitgeist. This is a show about TVs and movies and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm Jordan Conrad, and joining me is my co-host. And we are today doing an episode about Netflix. Uh, this is a show where we're talking about the um, the kids' side of Netflix. This is our second time recording. I will do my best not to make reference to the last time we talked Niv because that would probably just confuse our audience but this is a little bit of a Groundhog Day episode for the two of us so hopefully that means we're going to be twice as good at our podcasting so today we're talking about Pinocchio and we are talking about Matilda the Musical I am going to start this off with a quote so earlier actually almost a week ago now there was well it, it was exactly a week ago by the time this podcast comes out because it was last tuesday the golden globes guillermo del toro won for his movie pinocchio which we are now talking about we are not going to be talking except for maybe in passing reference about the other two pinocchio movies that came out this year there were two one was kind of under the radar it was i believe some slavic company Company distributed by Lionsgate. It was a CGI Pinocchio. There was a live-action Pinocchio directed by Robert Zemeckis from Disney this year. And this one that won the Golden Globe. And I suspect will be nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars as well. At his acceptance speech, Guillermo del Toro said, Animation is cinema. Great beginning. Animation is not a genre for kids. It's a medium. We made this movie with more than 600 units over more than a thousand days of shoot and gave life and beauty and truth to a tale about life, loss, and belonging. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's a movie not for kids, but kids can see it with you if you explain it to them. I couldn't have said it better myself. Niv, how do you feel about the tone of this movie? Obviously, you're very used to stuff like from the anime sphere, right? I'm watching a anime episode for, or series, for our next episode, and you directed me to two that were pretty dark but one was kind of meant to be sort of the Japanese version of PG, which still has a lot of darkness and blood. And how do you feel like that relates to this animated feature that is obviously, as he said, not for children, but children can enjoy it? Did you feel like it had enough darkness that you would feel comfortable showing it to a young child? Or where did you kind of stand on that? I mean, I would show this to my kids because even though like it deals with mature themes, I still think it's still relatively tame in terms of like western versus eastern animated features you know like in the east like with anime um it deal like they they showcase far more uh mature and edgy content to a much younger audience whereas in the united states and in europe that's like the opposite they are more protective towards like younger audiences so i think like this is a step forward in the right direction of where you trust kids with more serious themes so they can look at it and are able to absorb, you know, really important themes like fascism and authoritarianism, because ultimately that's what this movie is about, standing up against authority. I feel like, you know, our entire theme today is two movies about children standing up against authority, like very negative and harmful types of authority. Right, yeah. These uh, authority figures are both adults, which is kind of notable, and they're both kind of these, like, almost violent hulking adults, which we'll talk about in a moment, but I wanted to break down the first part of what you were talking about, which is that this version of Pinocchio is updated to the 20th century. So this takes place in Italy uh, during the uh, 1930s, I should say, um, between the two world wars, and so it's during the rise of Mussolini. And in that, they have have sort of a new character that wasn't in the original story. So before we talk about Podesta, I guess I should get into sort of the nitty gritty about what Pinocchio originally was, which is a book, right? So this was an adaptation of a book from 1883 by Carlo Caulotti. And like Del Toro's previous film, Nightmare Alley, Pinocchio was originally a film from the 1940s. That was the Disney film that a lot of people know. And so they're both re-adaptations. So in both cases, I feel 
like in Nightmare Alley, he added a little bit of extra gravitas. Obviously, in the 1940s, there was a lot more strictures on what you could portray on screen because every film was supposed to be all ages, and so they changed the ending and I think made it a little bit more toothless, whereas in Del Toro's um, Nightmare Alley, he kept a lot of what made the original book really interesting and sort of a morality tale. It adds gravity to Pinocchio as well because he is creating this new world for the film. But also, both of them, in a more superficial way, have a pretty hard emphasis on the circus, which is um, retained from the original because uh, Pinocchio is originally like this variety show act. Del Toro has a quote about this. Um, he says, These are times that demand from kids a complexity that is tremendous, far more daunting, I think, than when I was a child. Kids need answers and reassurances. For me, this is for both children and adults to talk to each other. He said this also in a different way during his acceptance speech. It tackles very deep ideas about what makes us human, he says, from Variety. What do you think about that particularity? Do you think that this is a harder time for children to grow up? And what does that, in your opinion, demand of our media, particularly our children's media? I mean, as I said, I think media is far more protective towards children nowadays, especially with like the amount of information that is pouring out. You know, it's harder to shield children from information that is so easily accessible, but yet media still tries to. So do you feel like maybe stuff like Cocomelon is trying to course correct for all of the kind of stuff that you can just Google and find on your own? In some ways, yes. I think there is both camps, right? One that is super protective and one that is trusting like the next generation by providing them platforms to sort of absorb more mature information in a much better way. I think Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio does a good job at um, showcasing those kinds kinds of themes as I talked about in sort of like a healthier way because it's still based in the tale of Pinocchio a tale that has been made really famous by the Disney version and you know I think that particular story will always appeal to children especially because the main character acts like such a child in the best and worst of ways so I think a lot of children can relate to this timeless character. But, you know, what Guillermo does is provide a forum and a platform for kids to see this movie, but then also think about it a little bit more deeply. I don't think, like, any kid will understand fascism as a whole. I think that's a very sort of difficult subject to break down. But I think when you break it down to its core, it's just, like, a child can recognize that these authority figures are very harmful and are very manipulative and self-serving and they see sort of Pinocchio stand up for himself and in that sort of situation that is easily transferable to a child and that's still a mature theme to talk about like this thing of adult abuse towards children for self-preservation and, and selfish reasons and I think in that sort of way it provides sort of a mature outlook for children but also allows them the tools to approach it in a good way. Yeah, and uh, something that also allows for that translation that you were talking about, a way to distill fascism in a way that's a little bit more digestible for young minds, is that they make the fascist leader someone that a child will find in their everyday life, which is a father, right? So in that, we have the new character, Podesta, who is played by Ron Perlman. Perlman is well known as a muse for Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman have collaborated on now seven films that Del Toro has directed, including his debut film, Kronos, which Ron Perlman has quoted as single-handedly reviving his career in the mid-90s. No one wanted to hire him after Beauty and the Beast, which was a show where he played the Beast, and it was only when Del Toro saw the Beast within and found that interesting. Perlman's Podesta is a new character loosely based off of the Coachman from the original story, who has now been entirely entirely removed. So the Podesta's character is at first a little concerned about Pinocchio's future, but then in the second half of the film, that's when he enlists Pinocchio alongside his son Candlewick, who is a character that remains more or less intact from the original book. I'd say that quite a bit of the original book is still in this story. Instead of being turned into a donkey, though, like 
it was in the Pleasure Island sequence in the 1940 film. The corruption of Pinocchio is, I believe, a little bit more metaphorical and somewhat more ambiguous, right? And his animalistic nature is in turning into a soldier, which I found to be really moving and a really interesting middle section moving towards the end. Podesta is, I would say, the secondary antagonist to the film, but in some way he also speaks to the heart of the world. And in some ways I think that is the thing I fell in love with most in the film, is the world of Pinocchio. The uh, design elements are really beautiful. The way that this film was crafted was pretty much like nothing else this year. And I uh, also wanted to talk about that, but how did you feel about Perlman's portrayal of uh, Podesta particularly? Did that section work for you, and in what ways? So much of this film was a passion project. Guillermo del Toro even stated in and in his interviews that this is a project he's been trying to get off the ground for many many years and speaking of ron perlman you know he did a fantastic job but i think like everybody did you know kate blanchett christoph waltz finn wolfhart and among others I think like so many of these actors who have worked with Guillermo del Toro before, you know, were just excited to be a part of this project with him. So it just felt like they were hanging out in the studio doing like this little fan project of Pinocchio, all for the sake of working with Guillermo del Toro again. So, you know, when you have such a high caliber cast working with such a high caliber director, but on a project that they're all really passionate about because of this particular director, then I don't know. I think it's hard to not look at the performances and be like, wow, because they're putting their all because they're, they're just filled with such enjoyment to be there in the first place. That's true. And I agree that I think that everyone is basically putting their A-game in. And yeah, you do feel it. You feel it in the final product. You feel the invention. You feel the excitement. And ultimately, I think that is the film's greatest strength. Pinocchio was created as a stop-motion film. So they utilized these mechanical figurines. These figurines are, from what I gather, very expensive to create. And they bring the characters to life with these um, creations. It was done largely by the company Shadow Machine and the work was based around Guadalajara, Mexico. The puppets were created in different scale for different purposes. So if the cricket needed to be shown in the same frame as another character, there would usually be a puppet made to scale for that character and then the cricket accordingly. So if it was from the cricket's perspective, you would get a full-sized human puppet. And if you needed something else, you would have a different kind of puppet. For a wide shot, I believe there was a puppet about the same size of a thumbtack. And then, of course, Pinocchio that was uh, large enough to, you know, fight in a WWE match. The uh, craftspeople actually originally had the villain of Magnifico be used instead of the primary antagonist they used instead. But midway through development, Guillermo brought a new idea to the table, which was a sleeker and more seductive version of the character, a true showman. So this actually mirrors the villain from Nightmare Alley as well. And that character was played, I think you mentioned, by Christoph Waltz, right? So Waltz is the composite character of Magnifico and the Fox. Um, What do you feel about uh, Waltz's portrayal? You know, he's not been doing a whole ton of stuff since his work with... Tarantino. I mean, before I get to that, I really want to talk about the animation aspect because you mentioned like the cast being the best part. I disagree. I actually think that the best part is the animation itself. As Guillermo del Toro talked in his acceptance speech that this is cinema, like the amount of man hours you put in each frame of those shots because it's essentially stop animation. Each shot needs to be reconstructed. You know, the puppets need to be moved in order for it to work in a sequence. You know, the amount of man hours is ridiculous and the amount of work put in is insane and yet what comes out is a movie that I honestly thought was generated on a computer versus handcrafted. I think it's going back to Christoph Waltz and what I said about the cast as a whole, I just feel like everything basically fell into place. You know, outside of the animation, which was the really, really, really hard part, everything else felt easy. I mean 
Christoph Waltz playing a villain, that, that's an easy choice. It's not something that's like, that that blows your mind away. He, he was just like the appropriate actor for the appropriate role. And he did an amazing job at it. But so did Ewan McGregor as, you know, Sebastian Cricket, as opposed to Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> and so did Ron Perlman with Podesta, because they're playing sort of their types, you know, the type of characters they've always played. And as opposed to Kate Blanchett, who plays just sounds on a monkey. Yeah, and John Turturro as well has a um, cameo as the Doctor, and um, Tilda Swenton, I don't think you mentioned, plays two characters, and both of them are like these godlike creatures. Actually, I would say that that is one of my favorite parts, is the way in which the, these like demonic rabbits take Pinocchio through the underworld. I, that part is, I think, maybe the most interesting thing in the whole movie. It's sort of a, a detour to the main plot, but it's such an amazing journey that he goes through the underworld and meets this creature with a um, hourglass that they flip and then says okay you have to wait here essentially in time out until it's time for you to go back into the real world and every time you die you'll have to go through this um, routine again and that to me was so wonderfully crafted and I haven't read the original novel from 80, 19, or 1883 and so I don't know if that particularity is part of it but it's such a wonder of invention and i haven't seen it in a pinocchio adaptation before i think it is an invention that guillermo himself devised you know and i agree with you i thought that was brilliant like the way death is showcased and the way death and life is sort of weaponized in in this world right because this movie starts effectively with a death you know the death of geppetto's son light spoilers the same actor who the actor who plays pinocchio plays another character which is geppetto's real life son both are played by uh, Gregory Mann and Geppetto's son named Carlo, uh, based on the actual author of the original book, you know, died from a bombing from Austrian-Hungarian troops in the in the very beginning. And uh, basically Geppetto, in his grief, builds like a puppet, the puppet Pinocchio, in or- because he wants to sort of pass on like his visage of his son to this puppet. Drunkenly, he doesn't actively want this to happen but he's so you know deep in his grief and a spirit a wood spirit sees this played by Tilda Swinton and gives the puppet life and she sort of creates these rules where she says like if Pinocchio dies he goes to what is essentially limbo stays there for a bit meets you know her sister death also played by Tilda Swinton and then he gets sent back but because he's effectively immortal, Podesta becomes very, very interested in him and wants to use him as an immortal soldier for the Italian fascist army. But in a similar way, you know, because he's a walking, talking puppet, Volpe, played by Christoph Waltz, also wants to use Pinocchio, but for more um, avarice means, because he wants him to basically perform in his traveling circus so he can get a bunch of money. Speaking directly about the character of Pinocchio, what interested Del Toro particularly, he said, is that he is the only puppet that doesn't behave like a puppet. He says, speaking meta sort of way. So his idea was effectively to create a character that is more human than human, to create uh, someone fashioned that was more fallible than his creator. And uh, the particular reason why he wanted to create Pinocchio as a stop motion picture was to actualize the event of puppeteering both Pinocchio and the other characters. And so I feel like it's the first adaptation that actually investigates the very nature of being a puppet, which is really beautiful and kind of uh, strange, almost. You know, it's uh, uncanny in some ways, but it's uncanny in a way that very closely fits Del Toro's oeuvre. Now, what did you think about the character of Pinocchio specifically? I mean, that's tough because while I enjoyed the the story, I enjoyed so much about of this movie, but at the same time, I still felt certain aspects of it didn't work. I mean, we talked about how it presents, like, mature themes in in a good way but it still makes the film feel very passive actually because 
I found that at times the film conflicted with itself, with its want to portray these mature, really deep themes and telling the Pinocchio story. Because at times it just didn't fit. You know, the Pinocchio story, the original Pinocchio story, isn't about fascism. But it is about, you know, going up against authority in, in some regards, in the lightest of regards, really. But whereas um, another film by Guillermo del Toro, like Pan's Labyrinth, which is about the same thing, like a child going up against authority, but in a world surrounded by fascism and terrible, terrible authoritarianism. You know, that one works because it doesn't need to be beholden to any story other than the story that Guillermo came up by himself. The problem with staying true to these original characters, which are amazing characters, even if you change them around a bit, you're still beholden to the story structure itself. You know, the story is changed at the end of the day, but the same beats follow. You know, Pinocchio comes alive, he struggles with becoming a real boy, he follows the same sort of beats, he, in the end he saves his father from a whale, he gets right. taken advantage of. All of that stuff happens, but in a world where there's also like the Italian fa fascist army. But ultimately, everyone feels familiar and everything feels like it has been tread before. You know, the, the path feels well-worn if you have already seen the 1940 film. I could imagine someone who hasn't maybe not having the same reaction, but I think your point still stands regardless. Uh, this comes back to what you asked me about Pinocchio. Pinocchio as a character in this film in particular feels like a very passive main character. Well, things happen to him. He doesn't actively seek out things himself because at the end of the day he's still figuring out what it means to be a real boy but because he is still very immature and still very much like a baby chick you know learning to walk he actively doesn't know what he wants and what he needs you know we talked about wants and needs before in our other episodes i mean his want is his motivation but so so much of the time he lacks you know motivation because he's effectively lesser than a child well, and his wants and needs tend to be very base, and it sort of just brings him from one situation to another. There are moments of want, but I think we'll talk about in our next episode, actually, an example of when a base wants something that is just sort of like the id driving you, which is, I think, the character of Pinocchio, something in which that is portrayed very effectively, which is one of the episodes or one of the series we're covering for our next episode. I'll tie it back over this at that point. But uh, in speaking about a passive main character and the way in which sometimes old material has that, I absolutely agree. And I think that while it is a wonderful sort of enlivening of that material, it does still have a character that is not very much aggressively um, rehauled and reshaped and considered. I think Pinocchio is considered in every aspect of his aesthetic being. Um, you know, he, he's got this knobby sort of wood look to him and that makes for a very engaging view it's uh something that is very pretty to look at but in terms of engaging with the internal life of pinocchio his personality and his point of view doesn't gel nearly as well with the world as a whole it gels well in certain aspects i would say and in certain moments the character i feel like comes to life in interesting ways when the character of spazitura is is teasing him, for example. That's really a great moment where we get to see Pinocchio's life come to kind of a boiling point, and you know, he is overwhelmed. And similarly, at a peak moment very near the end of the film, which I guess I won't spoil, although it's a very common plot thread if you've seen the original movie, is he has to make a choice about his values, and in essence becomes a man. And at that point, you know, you do get to see a lot of enlivening with this character of Pinocchio. But in many other aspects, that is washed away. So I would say, you know, I'll I'll bump up a little bit in the sense that I think there are moments, but I don't know if those moments necessarily indicate a larger whole. Well, it's because the world is clearly Guillermo del Toro's, whereas the story, like I said, there are some changes, are still Carlo Collati's, you know, and I think when they, when they match and jive really well, 
well, like the movie is at its peak, but when they contrast with each other, I feel like that's where the movie is at its weakest, which is to me like the middle part where the fascist sort of like enlistment of Pinocchio comes into full swing because Pinocchio is weirdly sort of passive in those moments, even with Candlewick, even with his friendship of Candlewick. It's not until like the very, very last part that he is given a choice that he actively has to act on in a really strong and very sort of precise way. He sometimes just like jumps to life out of nowhere, right? He'll be kind of like hanging out. This is the story. This is the story. And then he'll jump into action. In general, is this a recommend? Is this a yes watch? Or is it a if you want, blah, whatever? No, I I think this is a yes watch. I think it's one of the best animated films of the year. It's not perfect, but... By any means, I I think when we talk about our next film, which I think we both preferred more, but again, that doesn't mean Pinocchio is a bad movie. I think we both think it's a great movie, right? If anything else, it's beautifully made. It has an amazing cast. It's just, you know, it's not... 10 out of 10. I would say it's like closer to 8 out of 10 more than yeah, anything. I, you know, I think that's I think that's where I sit almost exactly. I would say even even further than beautifully made, I think it's masterfully made and I think it's a great show of Del Toro's strength as a late era filmmaker. We forgot to talk about one thing, which is this is a musical. We did forget to talk about that. No, that's okay. I mean, you forgot. I, I had it I had it in my pocket. At this end point of our discussion of it, it's an afterthought. The music is not something you go out singing. It's not something you even go out humming. You go out humming the scenery, as a famous critic once said. It's uh, not a musical with a lot of bite for the music. The music is pretty. The music is, I think, it functions in the aspect that it needs to function, but I feel like it is far more aesthetic. It feels much more in line with some of the like Fox emulatory Disney Renaissance movies from like the late 80s, early 90s, minus your fave Anastasia. That's got some solid hits. But in, I mean, in general, it's got more of that tone to it where they're attempting to do that Disney style of sing song, yada, 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 but it, it doesn't feel quite right. It feels out of place at times even though this the music is pretty it just feels like it stops the action at times and that is part of the problem i mentioned before that sometimes the movie just halts because of pinocchio's passivity and and that's made even sometimes worse with the musical numbers aiding in that passivity yeah, I think the musical numbers do usually come at a point in time where it needs a little bit of heightening. And I think in that way, the um, the musical numbers are successful. I don't find any of them to be kind of a tonal halt, but I will say that they are um, forgettable. But they lengthen the movie. That's what I mean. There are entire sections dedicated to them. And sometimes a single line would have gotten the same point across in another movie. And that's sort of like when you know when a musical should shouldn't be a musical. Agreed. But speaking of musicals, in just a moment, we are going to be talking about another Netflix original here in the States and everywhere except for the UK right now, which is Matilda the Musical, which we'll be talking about if you're listening on Mixcloud and Spotify right after a little bit of music, otherwise right after this. Okay, so let's talk about Matilda the Musical. Interesting thing about these kinds of projects that are on Netflix are that they occupy a space that is otherwise, I think, mostly absent from the modern blockbuster, particularly like their deals that they've made over the past year, like with Sony, right? So Sony Pictures, TriStar particularly, uh, helped greenlight this film. And Sony over the past year has been making a lot of more like mid-budget, sometimes indie films, stuff that feels very much more like stuff that you would see in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it's interesting because like a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to someone about how the mid-budget, like the traditional mid-budget doesn't go to theaters anymore. It's just available on streaming sites. Like I was, as an example, I was talking about how in the early 2000s, there was this <laughs> sort of obsession with like the spy genre uh, like but like joe schmo becoming like a spy like the movie tuxedo i would refer to that as like a mid-budget slash like lowish budget film 
that just doesn't get made anymore because it's like schlocky and is not put out in theaters anymore. It goes directly to streaming because Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, and Amazon have dominated those spaces to fill out their virtual library because those movies will not make as much money as like a Marvel movie would or a Star Wars movie would because they define the modern blockbuster. Like a movie like Avatar will easily make a billion dollars, but like a movie, I don't know, like Matilda will not. And and so it's relegated to be part of this virtual library because it's still like an expensive-ish movie to make, I think. But Pinocchio and Matilda cost around 20 million to 40 million dollars, which is still like a decent amount of money. It's still that mid-range of money whereas like indie films that cost between like five million to ten million dollars and at most like 40 million dollars gets into studios like a24 to be made and they're more regulated to like award circuit sort of praise and clout or horror there's the other side which is the horror genre which is very much thriving and blumhouse is a great example of that a24 has some horror but that is really their only two modes is either awards bait or horror thrillers because that's what they kind of specialize in is this very particular brand and they built a kind of in some ways artisanal version of that with directors like ari aster and robert eggers but even that eggers moved last year from a24 to universal you know in some ways he graduated and so that brings you back to the point where where do these mid-budget films go because the northman which was i thought a lovely film we talked about it on one of our early early podcasts it's a expensive movie still and it definitely doesn't live in the same world as something like um, Tilda. So, as I mentioned, there is a few factors that brought this to light, right? First, there was the um, obvious, which is that it was a co-production of TriStar Working Title, which is a British company, Netflix. Uh, most of Sony's catalog, as I mentioned, is now available in the U.S. on Netflix. Netflix also intends to, and this is why the uh, green lighting ended up happening the way it did, bring new adaptations to old work, so they have a Willy Wonka coming later this year with Timothy Chalamet, and the BFG, which is a film that was not all that old, but didn't really do all that well. That was one of those um, CGI um, Spielberg co-productions that really just didn't fail to, or kind of failed to land. It was like half CGI, wasn't it? Like the the giant was CGI, everything else was not. But yeah, it was like the last generation's Alan Moore, who also despised his adaptations of his work but you know it's interesting like you mentioned that and i feel and isn't it true like netflix have cornered the market on roald dahl's work because they now own like a specific studio that deals with roald dahl's work because i remember when i was watching that opening of matilda where it showed all the studios involved one that caught my eye was an actual like Roald Dahl Studios that was freshly made, you know, for this project. And I feel like it's going to continue spearheading these adaptations for Netflix. But yeah, because again, you mentioned the Willy Wonka movie and whether that's a Sony co-production as well or a Netflix only thing is, you know, it's a wait and see sort of situation. Most of the stuff I was just going to say, most of the stuff doesn't come to the platform until almost immediately upon release. So we don't really get to see the kind of runway most studios have. Netflix will drop a lot of information along with a trailer and basically a fully formed movie. So it's only late, late, late in post-production that we really know anything about Willy Wonka or anything. In fact, there's some set photos that were released, which is like the first time ever that I've seen a Netflix set photo so early. But you also mentioned like other things that have caused this movie to happen and one of the things i wanted to sort of bring attention to is the fact that like pinocchio it's a recognizable ip not only because like it is uh, an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book, which, again, which is Matilda. But it's also a direct adaptation of the musical Matilda that, you know, uh, started off in Broadway before moving on to the West End, which, as you know, I actually got to see. And um, how did you feel about the adaptation? Do you feel like it was fairly true? I mean, I ask knowing that the creative team actually did work on it. Again, as you mentioned, like it was directed by the movie was directed by Matthew. Workus, who 
directed like the Broadway um, production of Matilda. And the screenplay was by uh, Dennis Kelly. And the music was by uh, Tim Minchin. And, you know, which were the original creative team behind the actual like book and lyrics of Matilda the Musical on Broadway. I thought it was a pretty fateful adaptation in terms of like being able to bring the stage production to film. But uh, because especially because certain songs you know war were very much staged in this like alternate reality that was very far removed from reality which is what i wanted you know there there is there's a lot of magical realism that happens in the musical that i was really really worried wasn't going to transfer to the film but luckily in a lot of it that magical realism does get transferred over. And it's because the world of Roald Dahl allows for it to happen. Because as as you know, and I know, the world of Roald Dahl thrives in that magical realism sort of space. So it's it was just like a match made in heaven. And I'm glad that this musical got adapted onto the screen because you know yeah, it, it was just right for Tim it. Minchin, who is an Australian-based comedian known for his somewhat wordy comedy songs, sort of a predicating Bo Burnham, and uh, I knew him from Jesus Christ Superstar Live, but he has been working for a number of years and acting and doing various things. This was his first stage musical that he wrote, but he's gone on to write like Groundhog Day for Broadway. They both both first hit the West End. Interestingly enough, this was originally created and commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is where they do these very traditional Shakespeare shows. So I think initially he thought he was going to get asked to do another Shakespeare play, which I think he has acted in before, but instead was uh, approached for Matilda the Musical. But I feel like his wordiness is a real boon for the larger piece. He gives a great deal of of personality and character to the musical and his uh, style of humor particularly captures really that same sort of Roldar sardonicism that feels really um, notable. And you mentioned that the stylization is capped in uh, step, but I also wanted to mention that they did add a number, which is still holding my hand, which is kind of this small, somewhat fragile ending song with Ms. Honey and Matilda. And to me, it actually is a nice comparison to another film that was actually very successful here in the States, which was Les Miserables, the adaptation, which they had a song called Suddenly, which was also similarly a parental figure comforting a child and grappling with that feeling and how it feels for the first time to have that feeling kind of come over you. And so, yeah, I th just thought it was interesting that they kind of continued in that trend. I felt like it was very important, and Minchin himself said that he wanted to add that because you really don't get a curtain call, and so he wanted something Thing that wrapped up the show as a whole. But I wanted to touch on a couple of moments. The opening number, Miracle, which is a realization of Roald Dahl's opening passage dismissing parents' supposed adoration of their children as a delusionary bias, which I think is kind of a bold way to start off a book and is certainly a great wake-up to start the musical. You know, it really gives you a sense of the world that Matilda is attempting to create, which is decidedly very stylistic, and I'll probably say that more times as time goes on. It has a great opportunity because of that stylization, like you said, to give it that larger-than-life feel, and you get the little talking baby voices, which I imagine were probably just children in the uh, stage musical. That was one of my favorite numbers, and I was glad... You know, it, the movie came out swinging right from the beginning because it just showed us the world. It showed us sort of like the basis for the film. It just invited the audience really, really well to the story, which is, as you said, creating this false sort of perspective that parents have of their children, that they are miracles, that they are beautiful, that they are going to be loved forever. But then, like, the cruel reality hits that's not true for every parent in relation to their children. Speaking of Matilda, we would be so remiss if we didn't talk about Alicia Weir, who is a true, true breakout in this film. So, anything involving Alicia Weir, I have my list of standout moments, and at the very top it says, 
is anything involving Alicia Weir. I couldn't agree more. She's incredibly magnetic. Her time on screen is always a highlight. And interestingly enough, Weir had absolutely nothing to do with the original musical. She was, you know, sometimes you get these actors that can, can portray the character in a musical. You have to be careful with timing because, you know, when you have a kid, sometimes the kid will grow a little too old to be in the musical. Evan Hansen was an example of that. But the particularities for this is that they completely redid the cast and alongside it, Alicia Weir from Ireland was cast. And I believe they shot partially in Ireland so that they could accommodate Ms. Weir and uh, have as much time with her as possible. This was very helpful because she doesn't really have any downtime. There's not a whole lot of time where Matilda is not shown on screen. So yeah, I agree. Absolutely. A hundred percent. She was, uh, you know, and she was working alongside another Titan, Emma Thompson, who plays the villain, Miss Trunchbull, the borderline psychotic headmistress who torments Matilda and the other children at Crunchum Hall. So she is an interesting character because from what I understand, she was kind of a big change, right? The casting of Emma Thompson is in some ways odd and in some ways more in line with another version of Matilda. How was it portrayed on the um, original stage? I mean, on the stage, uh, like the actual stage, it's played by a man. Similarly, how in Chicago, the reporter character is also played by a man. Um, and it, again, it's because Trunchbull in particular has very manly features. I mean, she and the story is like an Olympian thrower. And we see how in her physique, she's very, very manly, like uh, almost to a to the effect of like almost parodying like her as a, as a human like because she's more monstrous than human um <laughs> but i think that even though you know there was that change i feel like emma thompson was amazing in the role and she totally did the character justice well and like we said before these kinds of actors are really made for roles like this you know she's very in line with it her um costume actually reminds me a lot of nanny mcphee which she has also personally mentioned from um 2005 which is a children's book sort of in line with like a mary poppins type of character but interestingly the original um role cast was ray fines um in may 2020 when this film was originally greenlit. So he was attached initially and then ended up moving from this to Mark Mylod's The Menu, which is another great movie that maybe we can talk about another day. But regardless, she also has come under fire recently, which is interesting. She, alongside Brendan Fraser, who recently made his own physical change for the adaptation of Samuel D. Hunter's The Whale, are both under fire for the fat suit that they wear. So Emma Thompson, in particular, transforms into Trunchbull by wearing a little bit of padding and in particular this very square prosthetic chin. I'll expand on that by also saying that the stylization of the film I think needs to be acknowledged. You know, her physique is not necessarily meant to be portrayed I think in a certain way or I would say in that particular way. And in addition, the physique is never um, made fun of which is something that I can't say for every piece of media that's come out over the past couple of years. The transformation isn't really leered at in the same way that occasionally is in The Whale. And so, while I think it is something that I would want to go back to with something like Brendan Fraser's portrayal, which I think does still have its own merit in its own way as well, Trunchbull's portrayal is, to me, something unique and fits the style, fits the character that Roald Dahl originally portrayed, which you could argue was also fatphobic in its time. But at the same time, Trunchbull is a... a real-life version or a um, an accentuated version of a real-life type of person. And that type of person is going to be a little bit larger in the sense that they are like a quarterback. They're more muscular. You mentioned that she has this great sort of villain song, The Smell of Rebellion, which I definitely want to touch on here because they were able to like build this beautiful set that was like mud and everything. So yeah, I would say the character of Trunchbull is, I think, effective for the movie that she is in and that she I mean I have no notes personally for Trunchbull's character I do think that it is important that we don't you know continue to fact shame people on screen and I think it is also just important to really continue 
to touch base on these particular portrayals and make sure that if this kind of stuff continues to happen and happen and happen again, these um, transformations should be critiqued in due course. No, I agree with that. I just feel like, again, I, I think Emma Thompson did a wonderful job in the role. In fact, uh, beyond just wonderful, I think she she hit it like uh, spot on in so many ways. I, in so many ways, I thought she was perfect for the role. And another way, I feel like I really want to push back, at least on like the, the fat aspect of the character, because in so much of this film, it's shown that she's actually not fat, but instead very muscular. It's just her physique is very different because... As I said, she's an Olympian. She's like an athlete. I mean, there's an entire song and section of the movie dedicated to her like training course that she tortures the children with. And it's it's hinted at that that's like where she trains herself in order to to be ready for whatever cruel thing she wants to do to the children. So again, I, I really at least want to push back on like the comparison to the whale, which actively portrays like an obese person. Because I don't think Trunchbull, in contrast, is actually portraying an obese person. I think she's just portraying a character with a much more masculine physique. And I think that's the core difference. Yeah, maybe in the future that would could be done better by casting someone who actually has that physique. I mean, conversely, right? Like, if you want to talk about true body positivity, uh, you would showcase, like, the body in all its forms and shapes and sizes. And I think Trunchbull actually makes a statement of showing women in a different light. Again, a more muscular, more um, strong physique that we normally don't see women on screen as. And I feel like... It, because it does something different and and again like because it's it, it's so different that it's on the point of being controversial I still think it's like a step in the right direction of like showcasing like this is how women can look like and that's okay so let's move back over to Alicia Weir for a second because we talked about the villain song the smell of rebellion with Emma Thompson now I want to talk about uh, so the song Naughty which is um, Matilda's I Want song I find the song really interesting because it is a kind of you know usually when you hear an I Want song for a musical for those who don't know a good example is the song from The Little Mermaid she has one that I find is really iconic and does a really great job of kind of summarizing both the the Ellen Menken uh, crew both do this really really well where they um, talk about it but it's not under the sea which is sort of a world song part of that world is the song so she's singing about how she wants to be outside of where she's at she wants to be and that is essentially what you really need to have for a character to come to life and from what I gather Naughty was a later addition to the musical and I think it really adds a whole ton because she she is talking not necessarily about her goals and her aspirations, but rather she's talking about how she is living her day-to-day -day and how she's surviving. I think one thing that really makes this film modern and interesting and additive to the conversation, right? We mentioned how it's easy to retread when you're readapting something in the case of Pinocchio. I think in this case, it makes an even better argument for readaptation because it adds that extra layer of trauma that I don't know if we really had that kind of understanding when this film was last adapted back in 1996 and certainly not back in the day of uh, when Roald Dahl was originally writing it. So that is a particularity I think is really worthwhile and really noteworthy and folds well into another point that I want to talk about. But first, the Song of Naughty. How did that uh, translate for you on the screen? And at the same time, like, you see it, and you see how she fights back, and she's trying to make the most out of, of, of the situation, because most of the time she's, like, the sweet little girl, but only with her parents she's like, no, I, I need to be naughty. I need to, to actively fight back against them. Otherwise, you know, I can't function anymore as a human being, which is heartbreaking. The last time this movie was adapted, it was directed by Danny DeVito, who also played like Matilda's father in, in that movie. And if I remember correctly, in that particular movie, like the father, the parents were like mean, but they were not cruel to the point where they were abusive. I feel like in this adaptation, 
and as in the stage production itself, you know, they were the parents are very cruel and abusive and absolutely reprehensible towards Matilda, which makes her conflicts and struggles that much more real. We talked about like how the overarching theme of this particular episode that we're doing today is children standing up to authority and to extension abuse. I feel like that is really true in this particular movie because Matilda's I Want song is just her standing up to her parents by doing naughty things as an act to fight back against them. Well, and it speaks to a theme that happens, I mean, time and time and time again, which is the nature of cruelty in this film. The actions of these characters are often really fairly bullying at, at the lightest, and at its worst, I mean, it is actual torture, right? The nature of cruelty goes so far, in fact, that there's this device called the chokey that children sit on when they're naughty, and the chokey closely resembles a real-life Iron Maiden, which was a famous tactic implemented in the 19th century in Nuremberg, you know? So particularly Trunchbull's level of cruelty is perhaps occasionally excessive to a point where some people found it to be a little over. There's a verse of Naughty that I constantly think is very powerful that she repeats. It's like the reoccurring lyric that appears throughout the rest of the movie. But it's, even if you're little, you can do a lot. You mustn't let a little thing like little stop you. You know, it, she says that a lot because she is arguably one of the smallest people in this film and she's constantly she is David versus Goliath but like a bunch of Goliaths whether it be Trunchbull or her parents and to be honest like the way she struggles is very internal until what I really love about this movie and one of the reasons why this lyric sort of motifs itself throughout this film is because she is not the only one that's getting abused. She starts seeing her fellow students at the academy also being abused by Trunchbull. And because she understands that abuse from her home, she's able to not only take a stand against Trunchbull, but inspire the fellow her fellow students to stand up against Trunchbull as well. And I think that's what makes her a really effective and really empathetic character beyond just the abuse she takes, because she actively fights for the betterment of the children around her. And again, we talked about how Pinocchio was a passive character. Matilda's the opposite. She's in the driver's seat the entire movie, constantly doing things, not only for herself, but for everybody around her. Yeah, she is a fantastic character in that way, and also the act of building community that you touched on is I think a really important and vital and interesting aspect that allows for other characters sometimes to get the spotlight. There's this really wonderful um, second half number called Bruce, where Trenchbull asks this character to do something that is this like inhuman task. It is, you know, and in some ways that is what Matilda is about, right? The act of going beyond your physical limitations and doing something, you know, you said, when you're little, you can do a lot. And you mustn't let a little thing like little stop you. That's exactly what happens with Bruce. Bruce is a little guy. He doesn't have the capacity to do this thing, which is what Trunchbull wants him to do. Eat an entire cake. You know, and then this is a punishment that she says, you know, she, he ate one little piece of cake. She says, finish it. Finish the whole cake. And Bruce, with the help of his community, is able to surmount this impossible task and in consequence is another form of uh, inspiration for the children. But the children all were initially inspired, of course, by Matilda herself. And, you know, later in the film, you get a lot more examples of that, which I won't recover here. We'll stay non-spoilers. But in um, attempt to sort of reveal some of the stuff underneath that, I do want to talk about one other song that really touched me, which is um, another piece that deals with trauma, which is the song Quiet, where uh, Matilda is going through this major change. She is having this moment of somewhat clarity. But in the description of it, she's speaking about a time of her life where she is so overburdened and yet can feel this sense 
of stillness, and I read it as a moment of disassociation. Disassociation, for those who don't know, is this feeling of numbness or detachment, which often happens when you are overwhelmed by trauma, which in this case, Matilda is, you know, she is being, her parents don't appreciate her, her parents don't even really recognize her, she's being made to be smaller than she already is. Let's be plain about that, her parents actively abuse her. Her parents abuse her, her teachers, well, her headmistress acts abusively frequently when she has the opportunity to do so. And so she is, quite frankly, you're right, an abused child. And because of this, she is able to, you know, find some truth and some real strength, which I think is such a inspiring story to tell in a time in which we are learning more about trauma. And so the song Quiet does a great job of showcasing that. And I have to speak around it a lot because I don't want to um, reveal too much about what's actually in the piece, but I would highly recommend you check out this movie for that reason. But nonetheless, in Disassociation, she's able to create something beautiful. It could be also read as maybe a meditative state, but I read it that way particularly because, as you said, Matilda is a traumatized child, and I think that is also important to acknowledge that she is allowed weakness in that way. And while Rule Doll doesn't really touch on the weakness as much as the, I think, musical tends to fall into. It does a really great job of bridging the gap. You know what's interesting? You mentioned the song Quiet, you mentioned the song Naughty. Those songs, while really powerful in the stage productions, were not the standout song. Stage production, like main song, like the core song was actually When I Grow Up, which in this film version, while a good, strong, and very much like the midpoint of this movie, which showcases sort of like the future that the children want to be in, like I want to grow up where I can feel responsible for myself and in charge of myself where nobody has authority over me where I can feel sort of weightless, you know, is, is a powerful statement, but it was actually much more powerful in the stage production because there was a stage picture that has been scorched into my mind. My professor once called it like the scorch moment that you get from when you're watching like a, a stage production. And in that particular production, like three kids got onto swings, these really long swings, and they started swinging all over the audience like it was Cirque du Soleil. But it was such a beautiful metaphor because again, it, it, it emphasized like that weightlessness of responsibility when you're an adult because you get to decide what you want to do and how you live your life, etc., etc. And it's what these kids are hungering because of how Trunchbull is treating them and how Matilda is being treated by her own parents. But that was missing here. And, you know, we talked about how most of the time the film does such a good job of adapting that sort of stage, the stage visuals and that magical realism. But that was the one time it was sorely missed. And even though, like, I'm sad about it, I understand the intention behind it because it was a much more subtextual and much more quieter moment. And that's how, like, the movie shifts a bit from the stage production. I like that word shifts because I feel like it doesn't necessarily, you know, negate the entire song. To me, the core feeling of it is where it comes in the movie is it feels like a moment for Mrs. Honey, who, or Ms. Honey. At that particular moment, Ms. Honey is not really, um, we don't know a whole lot about her and we start to learn more about her in the second half. And I believe, was that the, um, was that the second act opener? Nib? Yeah, I think it was actually the closer of the first act. I know we have we haven't talked about Miss Honey a lot, but Miss Honey is Matilda's homeroom teacher and the one adult who is like her ally in this movie, other than like the librarian um, who she follows around, uh, Mrs. Phelps. Yeah. And I have to talk about the actor playing her, which is someone who was this huge part of the last two, well, the last two years she has both had pretty tremendous roles in, believe it or not, action movies. Um, she was this somewhat maternal figure, very similar in uh, The Woman King from last year, which is getting a little bit of Oscar buzz. I don't know if it's really going to connect, but it was still a really, really solid movie. And she was positioned to possibly replace the 007 character in No Time to Die in 2021. Um, that was the last uh, Bond film from Craig. And she's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. So, you know, she's had a, a long, great couple of years. I don't particularly know a lot.
lot about the Marvel um, world, but I'm glad she's she's getting her dough there. But regardless, I also didn't know she could sing like this. You know, she has a tremendous, I mean, talk about Miss Honey. She has a honey type of voice. It's so, so silky smooth and sweet and really well done. I mean, pretty much everyone singing is doing a fantastic job. But that said, I mean, she's the newbie in this cast besides Alicia Weir. I guess that's without saying. But um, yeah, instead of having a song like When I Grow Up be kind of the centerpiece, I feel like instead they kind of replace it with Revolting Children, which is kind of the song that was a huge hit on TikTok. And honestly, for good reason, because it's a great song and it's an earworm. And it's where they really utilize choreography pretty strongly. Double meaning. Yes, exactly. The, um, the pun bit of it is really cool. But yeah, I feel like it just closes the film on a high. So that to me, was sort of the proxy of it. So I don't know if they necessarily lost anything. It just sort of shifted. You know, when you adapt, sometimes you do have to be particular about making these choices. And because it's the original creative team, I feel like they managed to not be precious, but also keep the true um, motivations prescient. But it is interesting. It is interesting because that swing in particular is also like on the poster of the musical. You know, that's like the central image of that musical. So even though, again, I'm glad I used the word shift, I am still a little sad. Not salty, but I am sad that the swings are missing from this film. Well, and they did have to change some stuff. They really pretty deftly truncated the roles of Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. Those characters, from what I gather, got a song or two in the original musical. So, yeah, there are things that I think do just have to change. And you're always kind of sad, especially if you like that kind of stuff to see it go. So I understand that. Nonetheless, I mean, I think it's a, a wonderful film on its own, right? You know, I think, especially myself having not seen it, I think it's a great way of bringing Matilda to a new audience. It's uh, in some ways locking in the performances so that they it can be enjoyed generation to generation to generation, which is something I remember as a child finding irritating about going to the theater was that when I left, if I loved it, I would never see it again. It would, I mean, it lived in my memory. So I don't think there's any real problems there. But nonetheless, that is the nature of plays is that they're ephemeral. So this not only acts to sort of lock in the creative team's sort of vision, whether or not it may be an altered vision, but it also, in some ways, uh, solidifies a play's legacy and means that those later on, you know, if Matilda the Musical in 10 years is not being performed for a while, it's very easy for it to be forgotten unless someone goes on Netflix and says, oh, a musical, I'm just going to watch this for fun, and then sees this really wonderful score, this really interesting proxy for trauma, and ultimately something really beautiful and really unique so do you have any closing thoughts on Matilda the musical to go back to what you just just were saying like it's also good to have like a strong musical adaptation after cats sort of ruined the market for a while because that was the last sort of big musical that was out on th in theaters and then ever since then no musical has been out on theaters because it poisoned the market and the last one I can think about as well also that was successful was also on Netflix and that was Tick Tick Boom. So I feel like now musicals are just regulated to be part of that virtual library and streaming sites. But yeah, I love Matilda and I highly recommend everybody to go watch it. It's not only a powerful film in the sense of the themes that we've been talking about, children against authority. It, I think it talks about like parental and sort of adult abuse towards children in a very powerful and really empathetic way. And, you know, if anyone is struggling with abuse, you know, just know that there are stories out there that see you. And I think that's really important to, to mention. See you and, um, you know, at least in some small way, help and show that there is there is something you can do, even if it's small, you know, you don't necessarily have to sit up and put up with anything. But also, sometimes it's the little things that really matter. You know, Matilda isn't changing the world overnight. You know, she's certainly doing more than what uh, someone in her position would likely do. Putting uh, super glue in, in hair gel bottles or some such thing. Um, no, I think I, I, um, I think I got that mixed up a little bit.
but she is the hero of her story. That's true. I think there's little to say about Matilda the Musical that isn't positive. Even though you're little, it doesn't mean the word little needs to stop you. And I think that's just the overarching message of everything. Yeah, it manages to combine that sort of ruled all cynicism, which this is a fairly cynical book initially, and also that amount of the positivity that ends up coming from Matilda's actions throughout the book, and especially in the later parts of it. So yeah, I think it fully justifies the film's existence nonetheless, and I am more than willing and most likely will rewatch this many times over. So that is our takes on Matilda the Musical and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. As we both have said a number of times, this is now available to stream here in the U.S. and maybe some other countries on Netflix, but not all. You're gonna have to check. But uh, yeah, this is kind of our uh, close-off for our Netflix episode. This one's been in the works for a little bit now. We have been um, kind of struggling to put this out, so thank you all so much for listening and continuing to tune in our next episode Niv do you want to tell them what our next episode is yeah our next episode is going to be centered around anime and it's going to be uh, focused on the anime Chainsaw Man and the anime Demon Slayer Demon Slayer is a little bit older you know but we still want to cover it because the new season is coming out and uh, Ufa Ufa Table uh, the studio behind uh, Demon Slayer is one of our favorite studios so it's it's high time that we cover them. I think it is. And it's also just kind of, I feel like both pieces are a good introduction, especially for outsiders. And my, I myself am an outsider, so if you don't know much about it, feel free to check out a few episodes and, and tune in, because there's definitely going to be at least a little bit of material for you uh, before we dive into spoilers next episode. But until then, I'm Jordan Conrad. And I am Nevo Boz. And we are closing off another episode of Zeitgeist. Thank you for listening, and... And we will see you soon. Bye-bye for now.